You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Harry Christian and I, Niels Kastel-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, let me start by saying welcome with the hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity and hunger for learning enough to check out the back catalog and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Rob last week where he revealed a huge change to his strategy that allows him to effectively trade 140 markets uh, with a small account size using a very interesting selection process. So if you missed that episode, I invite you to go back and check it out. As you know, the aim of the podcast is to inspire you as an investor. We want to be provocative, but without being polarizing. We want to challenge consensus narratives and to learn how to think critically about investing in an uncertain world and to provide you with a framework and a mindset that we believe is truly robust. And if you want to help us achieve our goal, what we ask of you is that if you can comment, if you can send us your questions, if you can share these episodes, and not least, if you can rate and review them in iTunes, we would greatly appreciate this. As this is the way for us to see that you get value from our time and dedication each week to create these episodes, and as long as that continues, we continue to do them. Harry, great to be back with you uh, on the podcast this week. How are you doing? How are things where you are? And are you getting ready for the uh, holiday season? Uh, well, I'm well. Thank you, Niels. And I am trying to get ready. I have two boys. One is very easy to buy presents for. The <laughs> other one is extremely difficult. So uh, I'm hoping to overcome that challenge. Excellent. Fantastic. Good stuff. We've got a new topic that we're going to talk about today, um, and uh, we've got a few questions that we need to uh, go through. So I think um, that uh, this will be a fun and and, and very interesting uh, conversation. Um, before we jump into all of that, um, I want to just, as usual, of course, give a shout out to all of those of you who left the rating and review this week. Uh, we so appreciate this. In terms of a market wrap, I guess you can say that, as expected, Chairman Powell turned tough on the post-open market committee meeting this week and announced the accelerated wind-down of the Fed's open market purchases. Moreover, the so-called dot plot, the committee's forecast of interest rates, is now projecting three rate hikes in 2022 and three more in 2023. It probably would have made more sense have we heard this message uh, last January but Powell failed to take action despite the rise in inflation and accelerating uh, economy in the U.S. Instead, the Fed's re reverse repo operation, the mechanism designed to sob up excess liquidity in the system, now regularly clears above $1.6 trillion and Treasury bills out to March 2022 are all below 0.05%. It will be very interesting to watch the Fed put their easy money forever liquidity machine into reverse and drain the excess from the system without tipping the U.S. into a recession and causing a serious stock market correction. With the recent change in policy at the Fed and other central banks, by the way, I can't help thinking that perhaps these more hawkish measures are coming in just as you would expect to have 
in the process or in a process of deflating the equity valuations that we've been witnessing at the moment and that has surpassed historical levels for the past 100 years. Today's equity valuations compared to GDP is the uh, it's actually higher than we've ever seen before, higher than the tech bubble, higher than the go-go peak in the 1960s, higher than the Great Depression in the 1930s, as well as um, if we go back all the way to the peak just around the year 1900. So what some commentators is calling the everything peak or everything bubble is probably a fitting way to describe it. And of course, if we do end up with a prolonged bear market in equities, well, at least we know that historically trend following has been one of, if not the best investment strategy to own. But um, enough about the market wrap. Harry, What's uh, what are you keeping an eye on these days? What's kind of caught your eyes uh, since we last spoke? Uh, well, I'm curious about the level of coordination across the central banks. Um, I know that the Fed has finally acknowledged inflation in a big way, but the ECB has done so less. And one of the key things that's got, gone on over the recent years is that keeping everything in check, keeping markets functioning in a semi-normal way has required a lot of coordination across the central banks. And if that broke down, one could imagine big swings in rates and currencies. Yeah, no, I, actually, that's a good point. And just staying on that topic for a second. So I remember when I started out in this uh, industry uh, or in the investment world in, in the 1980s. So for the first 15, 20 years, what we saw typically was that the global economies, so Japan, Europe, the US, they were not in sync, right? They were kind of doing their own thing. They were quite divergent in, in many ways. And so if one area of the world got into recession, there were other areas of the world that actually had a really good time and it kind of uh, worked out pretty well. And I think you make a good point about the coordination because what's happened uh, in, in the last 20 years or, or, or so is that the world economies have to a large extent really come completely in sync, which also means that if you have a change in the direction of where they're heading, you would imagine that, that the amplitude would be bigger because there's no nothing to offset um, that change, so to speak. Um, so I think I, th I think you 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 highlight a really important part uh, of of the issue going forward for sure. Um, on our side, uh, so far um, this week was relatively quiet in terms of our trend following strategies. Market participants surely are starting to look towards the upcoming holiday season. We did see some losses, mainly coming from softer U.S. equity markets, also the U.S. interest rates, both uh, short and long term. And of course, the energy sector, which uh, retraced uh, a bit further this week. Um, offsetting some of these were actually UK short-term interest rates. We'll come to that in a second. Um, Hang Seng, and, uh, where we already have uh, short exposure. Um, and uh, currencies uh, worked out pretty well. My own trend barometer, um, it's still weak. I mean, it's still at level of 32, which I would reckon as, as oh, I would call that a weak level. So it does suggest that there is still some challenges in, in trend-following land, um, which I think is fair to say after we had that uh, end to November, without a doubt. And um, now, of course, I always have to be a little bit more careful when I talk about the volatility space when I'm with you, Harry, because you are the volatility maestro. Uh, so, But in terms of volatility, I guess uh, it didn't come as a complete surprise that the VIX traded higher going into the FOMC meeting. And perhaps a bit of a surprise, though, 
that the Bank of England raised rates suddenly for the first time on Thursday, which gave the VIX a bit of a tailwind going into the close of this week. Um, so I'm not just sure if there's a sort of any direction that's been found yet in land of volatility. Uh, in the VIX at the moment, it looks like this kind of roller coaster continues for a little while longer. All in all, um, I think we saw about two points increase in the VIX for the week, uh, while the S&P dropped down about 2%. So nothing too dramatic, I guess. My own trend-following portfolio, it's not having a great time in December. Uh, it's down 3.79% so far this month, still up a little bit for the year, 2.69% for the year. Um, this month actually is kind of the reverse of November. So we have uh, losses in Group 1 classical trend models of about 79 basis points. Group 2 with a long bias, losing a little bit, 27 basis points. But it's all the action is in Group 3, quick quick um, short-term trend-following models where they did really well uh, in November. But of course, now that the markets have bounced, it's suffering from that. So it's down 2.73%. So most of the losses in December so far coming from that group. In terms of uh, sector attributions, currencies are bonds doing best. And the worst sectors are equities, base metals, and uh, followed by the precious metals. Just very quickly, in terms of markets, uh, the best ones right now is uh, the euro, the Swiss market index, and US 10-year notes. And at uh, the bottom, we find the DAX, NASDAQ, and copper. Um, and finally, this risk-to-stop level I talk about, it's really the lowest we've seen all year. It's down to 4.85% if all positions got stopped out. And that's down from 5.47% last week. So definitely a very defensive stance as we head into the holidays. Now, as mentioned, we have a couple of questions, which is nice. Thanks for sending those in, Daniel and Mervyn. So let's try and dig into some of that. Uh, I'm going to ask you, uh, Harry, to wear your trend-following hat for a little while. Um, and uh, so, so let's, let's see if we can help uh, Daniel first here. The first question is in line with the recent episode with Rob Carver, where the discussion was on the execution implications of a small account. I have a small account and find myself in a in the position where I have used my limited capital and get a new entry signal. I then need to make the decision on whether to exit the current position, to open a new position, or not to take the entry signal uh, as I've used all uh, used up all my equity. I've uh, quite wide stops with longer-term systems, and I find that positions can go sideways for periods of time, but not hitting my stop. So I have a new entry signal at the time. So I have a new entry signal at the time. Um, oh, let me do that again. That's completely... Um, <laughs> so I have a new entry signal at the same time as open positions that are going sideways. My current thinking is that I shouldn't exit the open position brackets as a good systematic trader and therefore can't take the new entry but the new entry might be the outlier positive skew event that we've been hunting for as rich always says i am tempted to exit a sideways positions but don't i would love any suggestions from you guys about ways to think about the issue so let's drill it down a bit. So we're dealing with an issue where when you have a small account size, you can't trade, you can't have on as many positions as you would ideally like because in trend following, we kind of like to have as many small bets as possible. So that's the issue. And um, 
So I'd love to hear your thoughts on on this, if you've ever um, sort of thought about it uh, in in your journey, uh, Harry, um, and have any suggestions? Yeah. Well, it's a good question. Um, there are a couple of answers. The first one is if you exit the old position and put the new position on, you now have a pair of transaction costs. Now, maybe that's not a big deal if you're a long-term trend follower, but if you do trade a fair bit, you should be aware of that. Um, barring that, and going back to Niels's paradigm, which is it's desirable to have lots of independent uh, convex bets on at the same time, maybe the right thing is to take something out of the existing position and put it into the new one. It's, you know, it's almost an old trading maxim. Um, don't be too extreme in your decision-making. Try to do things fairly smoothly. and Maybe that's the right way to play this. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. And of course, that's assuming that you have more than one contract in your current position, so you could maybe sell uh, half of it and, and take on a new signal. Um, on the other hand, I think we must um, accept and acknowledge that this is one of the challenges you have with trading small accounts. Now, in Rob's episode last week, um, he had the same issue to some extent, although he were able to, before he made the change, still have, I don't know, 25, 30 positions on at any one time. But what he now have done through some fancy algorithmic work, optimization, uh, um, you could call it, is to select from a much bigger universe to a point where he's um, have a high certainty of getting the optimal, you know, selecting the optimal markets out of that um, uh, universe of markets without compromising too much uh, on um, on the fact that he has a, a small account size. So I'm sure you've listened to that episode, of course, um, Daniel, but um, it is one of those things where there may not be the perfect solution, of course, other than to either invest more or um, or find contracts, of course, and I'm sure you're aware of that, that there are contracts now coming out that have smaller notional size, and therefore you are able to, to add those on um, instead of, trading, say, a, a full S&P or S&P mini, you can now do the micro contract. And, and that is definitely uh, something to do. But at some point, I guess what you're, what you're also realizing is that at some point, there's just no way around it. You, you have no more capital to take on new signals and therefore your universe of markets will be limited. And then the other alternative, which I also talked to Rob about, is of course to say, yeah, well then maybe if you really want to hunt for all of these outliers, you may have to go with an external manager where you can get for $100,000 exposure to all of the markets that they have uh, in their portfolio. That is the alternative, of course. Any thoughts? Yeah, one quick one, uh, which is that you can't really win because if you're very big, then sometimes you can't do enough right. of small contracts to diversify. So you're yeah. stuck in the big ones. And if you're not very big, you come up against the contract size hurdles. So... Um, don't feel too bad. It's difficult on both extremes. Yeah, no, definitely a good point. The other question we have in, Harry, is from Mervyn. Mervyn writes, I'm really looking forward to your Christmas panel discussion and think it'll be very informative and a good fun too. After listening to the last few podcasts, I was particularly wondering about the issue relating to allocating to trend-following strategies given that this is the most appropriate option for most investors. So here I think Mervyn means investing with an external manager. 
The biggest issue that I see for an individual investing in trend-following strategy or fund is the risk of a serious drawdown just after investing. Has any of your panel done any research on the composition of large drawdowns to determine how much is due to a give back of large profits, open profits, and how much is due to the normal small losses from new positions? I'm just wondering if there is any merit in only allocating to trend-following strategies when they when the risk to stop, which is the one I refer to, um, uh, is in the low in the lower end of its range, and trends are not overstretched. And Mervin goes on. I have run my own trend-following strategies as well as investing in trend-following funds for the last 15 years, and find it very difficult to identify low-risk entry points when allocating new cash into funds. Very many thanks. Keep up the great work. I never miss an episode. Mervin. Thanks so much, Mervin, for the question and your kind words. So I'm happy to go first, Harry, If you, but if you want to dive into this, go ahead. I'll let you go first, Niels. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So, so I think, so here are my thoughts, uh, Mervin, because of course we don't know, um, or at least let, let's put it this way. I don't track um and and maybe someone like Jerry does because he has this distinction between open trade equity and 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 closed uh, trade uh, closed equity but tracking whether you're giving back uh, open profits or whether you are giving back um just small losses from lots of open positions the only thing i can think of that might help you to determine that is when you look at the uh quickness uh, or the speed of the drawdown. So let me give you an example. For example, in November, we know that Black Friday um, meant huge givebacks for many uh, trend followers in one day. When something like that happens, I think you can almost be sure of that's giving back a lot of open profits. That's not small. That's not signals being whipped around because it happened so fast. And it doesn't have to be in one day or in, but 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 if it's within a week or two. I think a lot of that happens from just open profits where you give back some of that or most of it, all of it. In terms of small losses continuously causing your drawdown to become deeper, I think you have to have time on your side, meaning I think you have to see this development uh, happening over several months and and not actually starting out. I mean, I don't think we're going to... The first month or two, it's probably not that. But if you see a drawdown getting from, say, three months to six months, and it keeps adding a small negative return every time, I think you can be fairly certain that there is a lot of that coming from just range trading signals being stopped in and out. So I would take that as, as a sign of, of, of the latter and, and not so much the first uh, part. Now, in terms of a low-risk entry point into trend following, I think this is a great question. And... Um, I think there are two ways to deal with that. And, and and you could say, in a sense, that this is something you could use and apply to many kinds of, of investing. But in particular, I would say to trend following. So one is you could, and I, I, have, a, I have a client actually who does this. Um, he invests a small amount every month. So he has no, he's not trying to time anything. He's got a, a good allocation and then he keeps adding to that every month. Like you see a lot of people do in, in other types of investments or the pension plan. They just keep adding. So he diversifies his entry point, you could say, because he wants to hold this for the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years. 
Um, but the other thing, I and I think this is really maybe unique to trend following in particular, because there's a lot of evidence behind the um, sort of proven way of looking at it. And that is, of course, to try and buy trend followers when they are in a drawdown. And and so you could still do the monthly allocation, but I think you should you should be open to investing more when a manager gets into a quote unquote meaningful drawdown for them. So to make it very specific. Um, so at our firm, where we have 37 years of track record in the current strategy, 47 years in total, but 37 years in the current strategy, for us, we track kind of drawdowns for the fully leveraged version that goes beyond 25%. So given our volatility, it's not unusual that we would see from time to time, every three or four years, we might get a drawdown of 25% or more. So that's something we track. And I think from memory, it's happened 11 times in 37 years. So it does happen from time to time. But what I also track is what happens with the returns the following 36 months. But whether you get the absolute low or whether you just get invest in any month where the drawdown is 25%. So even if it goes to 27% or 31% after that, if you just invest in a month where there's been a 25% drawdown since the last peak, what I've seen at least historically is that you get tremendous upside in the following three years or five years. So I I really truly believe that there is something to be said about buying trend followers in when they're in a, in a meaningful drawdown. Now, as I said, this doesn't happen that often. So if you just sit there and wait for that to happen, you might miss out, of course, on a really good run that never gave you an entry point. So maybe a combination of the two, an ongoing allocation that just keeps adding to your portfolio, uh, and then more attention to maybe adding a bit more when when there is a meaningful drawdown. Um, I think that that is a strategy that I would be pretty comfortable with. What are your thoughts about this, Harry? Is that something you've also met in your, I mean, it doesn't actually have to be trend following. It could be in your volatility strategies. When should people invest and how do they avoid investing and heading straight into a drawdown, which is, and I I have to say, even after 30 years plus in this industry, it is one of the most painful thing to watch is that you get a client who, after watching your performance for years, decides to invest in it and they just hit a really bad time to get in. That is painful. I have a few comments. Uh, the first one is when a client or a prospect is states to you that they're going to watch you for a while, that's a very difficult place to be because if you do very well, then they've missed out on the performance. Mm. If you do go into a drawdown, then they can go cold on the strategy. So it, it often these timing issues play a big role. Um, The other point I wanted to make, though, is putting my risk hat on. Buying trend following after a drawdown is actually quite interesting from a risk standpoint, because if you you go in after a drawdown, it's likely that the stops are closer to the current level, the price levels for the various contracts traded, than if the trend follower has been doing extremely well. And what that means is that your payout will be more asymmetric. When the stops are closer... What that means is that you have more option-like characteristics in the trend follower, which can be very attractive from the standpoint of minimizing losses and amplifying returns on a forward-looking basis. Indeed. And 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 again, just 
talking from my own experience is that, of course, most people prefer to buy trend follows when they're making new highs because it's almost this fear of missing out that just is just so overwhelming. Uh, like with any type of investment, really, people just, you know, flock to it um, after it's done really well. And if you have a long enough time horizon, yeah, that's okay, no problem. But the other thing that I have also seen a lot in, in my career is really that people will will study decades of returns to decide if they should invest and hopefully they decide to invest. But they will only determine their exit from that strategy based on very few months of bad performance, which is really, really weird when after you've taken all this time to make the decision that this is a good investment to have and then be so uncertain about it after a few months uh, or even one or two years of investing because that really does not make a lot of sense, especially in a strategy where, and that's actually also with equities. I mean, equities have had 10 years where they made no return. Uh, trend following has not had 10 years with no return, but they've certainly had a few years with no returns, including our our shop for sure. Um, but it's um, it's just something that is very hard maybe to manage from a mindset point of view, uh, I imagine. I could imagine it's the same with volatility strategies that people finally finally commit to it. And then after 12 months of little or no return, and then they start thinking, well, this volatility stuff, does it really work? Well, of course, that's one of the reasons why we're here uh, to educate people about this stuff. So, uh, yeah. absolutely. So I promised that we're going to talk about something different today. So I'm going to keep that promise, um, thanks to uh, Harry, because one of the things that, um, or, or the thing that, that Harry wanted to bring up today um, is kind of trend following in, and machine learning and that kind of framework that we, um, that, that, that you have once you start, you know, using that in, in your trend following. Now, before we get into all the details, um, what I would like to do, and I, I sorry I didn't give you an advance warning on this, Harry, but I wouldn't mind if you could just talk a little bit about kind of the, I call it the history of machine learning, but just give us a sense for when when did this become a thing? Um, people talk about it a lot today, but I don't, I mean, we haven't talked about it for that long uh, in, in my view. And, and what does it really mean? Uh, what does machine learning really mean? I think that there are people who are not, fully clear on this and is it the same as ai those two terms are often used uh together but is it really the same i, I you know for my benefit as well i'm i'm not an expert in this area so if you could just give us a little bit of a context before we move into how we then apply this in the trend following world yeah I mean, this was one of the goals for me today which is to try and narrow machine learning down enough that we could actually have a reasonable conversation about it great it's just so wide um, I can give you a little bit of personal history, which is that when I was a graduate student, I took a course in neural networks, which now would be in the deep learning category. Mm -hmm. And people strongly discouraged me from attempting to apply this in finance because they said anything you can do with a neural network, you can do with a simpler model. And this all changed, I think, in the past 
10 or 15 years with the tremendous success that machine learning systems have had in other fields, like uh, image recognition um, and restoration and various other um, natural language processing applications. So if you go on Google Translate, or if you look at uh, the way that you're, um, you can Photoshop an image or smooth an image or recognize license plates, fuzzy license plates from a distance, all mechanically without the human eye. Um, in a way that stands up to the test of the human eye or the human ear. That has created, created tremendous interest in the field. And the fact that we have much more powerful machines and much more data, I think until maybe the 90s, you couldn't get much more than open, high, low, closed data for many markets, has led to the real proliferation of interest in the field. Now, it is a massive field. And so what I want to do today, and please... Uh, dial, uh, pipe in when you want, Niels, sure. is to narrow it down enough that we can at least have a reasonable conversation about how machine learning could fit into a trend following context. So one thing I won't talk about today is looking at satellite images to try and figure out how electricity grids are being fired throughout the world and applying machine learning to that. Another thing I won't talk about is other forms of non-structured data like images and so on. Um, or even looking at Fed statements from a machine learning perspective or fundamental data. What I want to restrict myself to is applying machine learning to price signals only so that we can actually make a reasonable comparison between what standard trend followers do and the way you can think about the problem using modern machine learning techniques. I think that's fantastic. I'm, I'm very much look forward to to that. So why don't we just uh, jump into it and and start out with maybe kind of the the standard or classical trend following uh, side. Well, again, you know more about this than I do, so my trend following hat is a bit flimsy. But nonetheless, I'll make a few comments. I realize that risk management and position sizing is crucial for trend following, but let's for now let's just focus on signal generation. Sure. So you have a bunch of markets, a bunch of futures contracts, and you want to um, identify trends that could lead to profitable trades in the long term. So you might have a bunch of trend indicators. You could use moving average crossovers. You could use breakout signals and so on. And the goal then, as, as, as I understand it, is to mix and match those signals in a way that each signal is different enough from the other one. There's enough diversification in signals that you get a robust indicator of up or down trends. That's roughly the way it works. Now, this has many positive attributes. One attribute is you can tell people what it is you're doing. Um, you can look at trends with the human eye and compare them to your signals. So these models are easy to interpret. Since a lot of people use these sorts of models, they're relatively straightforward to benchmark. So you can look at performance relative to some mechanical trend-following strategy. Uh, the final thing is that you're not really overfitting the data much because many systems use the same signals across markets. So you have lots of markets and you have lots of history to test each signal or each subsystem. So there's very little risk of overfitting the data if you do it in a reasonably parsimonious way. And so there are lots of advantages to standard trend-following over and above the 
asymmetric payout structure and the ability to really profit from major trends when they occur in specific markets. There's also this issue of robustness and interpretability. Um, now, if you want to step in before I jump into machine learning, go ahead. Well, I mean, so so I don't know if you actually talked about what you think might be the disadvantages to that kind of simpler uh, process. I don't know if I, I heard you talk about the, the, the sort of the, yeah. the cons of, of doing that. And then I have a couple of comments, but yeah. Yeah, well, one of them is when you choose your signals and you choose your weighting schemes and so on, you're making a lot of decisions. You're imposing a lot of structure on um, a bunch of price series that may or may not be valid. Your decision-making or design step specifies a lot of the problem. It, it, it constrains what your system might be able to, to do. Uh, and another issue could be that most systems aren't tuned in a way that they're designed to respond particularly well to specific market regimes. They're kind of all-weather systems. And if you think about it, price data is high-dimensional. Every time you get a new data point for a given series, say a wheat futures contract, you've added to the dimensionality of the problem because there's another degree of freedom in time where the price could have moved. So you're really mapping these very high-dimensional price series into a low-dimensional space that is quite rigid, although robust. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So before we jump into to the machine learning side of things, so I would say uh, you you highlight some really uh, important uh, topics. Um, with regards to the latter, where you talk about some of the disadvantages, I agree. Um, and and we are often asked, for example, that um, for example, when if there's a big down month like uh, February of 2018, from memory. And, and even November of this year, uh, where suddenly things change and you have a big down uh, month, um, I think a lot of investors will kind of uh, wonder and some of them will ask us and say, well, isn't there something you can do to mitigate that? And, and, uh, and the answer is, yeah. I mean, of course there is. You can add things to your model that will mitigate that. Um, the problem, certainly on our side, what we found is that if we start adding those things that will make months like that look better, we actually detract from the long-term return. So, so this is why, and, and since we focus on the long-term com, long compound effect of, of what we do, this is something that we're not really interested in, in doing, unless we found something that where the cost of doing it is, is, is rather, rather small and, and therefore it's a, an, it's a win uh, for, for you know, all the way around. So I, I do think that, that that is definitely um, something you kind of just have to accept and say, okay, if I'm going for the long-term returns, I need to accept the short-term pain or, um, or um, yeah, pain uh, along the way. Um, the, the other thing I would just say, uh, which is probably um, to, to the positive side, is that I do think that there is some link. Uh, I don't know if it can be kind of directly proven, I'm not sure, but... I do think there is a link between simplicity and robustness. So I do think the idea of, as Jerry often says on the podcast, you know, one entry, one stop, um, one exit, one stop. Um, I, I do think that there is some um, truth to that, that when you keep things really simple, you have the best chance of, of actually having it work for you for decades. I mean, 
we don't see that many hedge funds, frankly, in the world that has a longer track record than we have at done. 47 years, that's a pretty long time to be doing essentially the same thing, although it's evolved. And you don't see that much with certainly discretionary managers. Um, and um, and so, and even with other strategies that might be somewhat systematic. So, so I do think that the value of trend following comes from its quote unquote simplicity in that sense. So let, let's move on to the kind of the more, now we get into the more advanced stuff, I guess you could say, and, and the machine learning side of, of things. Okay, again, I'm not going to try and sell you or dissuade you from this, but I think it's quite an interesting discussion. Yeah. And what I want to push into or push toward is kind of a machine learning interpretation of all the things that people know about trend following. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think of trend following signals from a machine learning standpoint, you can re- relabel them as features. So what you're doing is you're taking all this price data and there are these complicated paths in every market and you're saying, this problem is so high dimensional that if I use my whiz-bang machine learning system on it, I will find tremendous structure, the finest patterns that sadly will never repeat themselves in the future. So I will over-optimize everything. But the goal has to be to reduce the dimensionality of the problem to the extent where you can actually try and find repeatable patterns in the data. And things like moving averages or ranges uh, or volatility indicators, they're all features. So what you can do is you can go back over time and using your system, and I don't want to talk too much about specifics here because that goes into a more proprietary direction, but you can go back over time and see if various combinations of features led to specific outcomes. I know that many people or certain people tried to do this in the past where they said, can we characterize the state of the market? an example, if volatility is high and trend is strong, or let's say, and ranges are wide, um, does that lead to different outcomes to a situation where volatility is low and the trend is strong? And I think a lot of trend followers already know the answer to that, but using machine learning to sort of extract more features than just trend from the data to find finer structure can be beneficial, not only in terms of potential performance, but also in terms of understanding setups or conditions, regimes, let's say, where your system may do better or less well. So I think it's very good as a diagnostic test. You can go out and do things like, um, even in a more prosaic setting, you can go out and say stuff like, um, oh, uh, returns look a little bit different for grains in months where harvests occur or where weather patterns are different without actually knowing the specifics of the market directly. So it can be a great diagnostic tool for understanding sensitivities of prices over time or based on the state of the market um, at a given point. Yes. Very interesting. I don't know if this was something that came to my head when I was you talk about it or so I have no idea if there's any truth to it uh, or if it's a good way of explaining it but I can see or I feel I, I I get the impression that what machine learning might add as a dimension to trend following is one thing that we don't do and can't do today and that is a level of and I have to use the word very carefully a level of anticipate anticipate anticipation 
meaning we can't anticipate any change in trend per se because we kind of need the markets to turn and go against us before we even start reacting. And I don't know whether what you're saying is that with these features, machine learning models or add-ons might pick up certain patterns that essentially could be used or might be seen as a kind of a a little bit of a warning of things that might change. Now, um, on, on our side, in a pure kind of classical trend-following way, we do certain things that kind of, uh, it's not machine learning for sure, but but um, but it is interesting because one on on the static side where you say yeah you 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 make certain assumptions you make you you make some choices on your models on your timeframes etc cetera, etc. Cetera. What we've done for almost twenty years now is that we actually allow the model to pick these parameters, right? So we don't do it in a manual fashion. We don't have have a committee that says. All right, right now we should be 25% short term time frames, 50% medium term and 25% long. We don't do that. We want the data, we want the evidence to deal with that. So so that's one way where our model actually quote unquote will learn because when the data changes, it might lead it to pick different time frames and this is all an automatic process. So there's and 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 this goes, I think, for many, for most trend-following systems, but maybe in, in a higher degree, um, the way we do it is that it adapts. Uh, other trend-following systems will also adapt just from the data being different. But but we might we we do something with that data over time, not not every week or anything like that. But over time, it could have an influence on that. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's interesting. There, there are lots of um, issues, even with the term machine learning, which you alluded to in the beginning. A regression mm. is machine learning. It identifies a relationship between two variables, a linear regression. And it can be used to predict, although I wouldn't suggest using it in, in a trend-following context. Um, there are other problems, though, with, with machine learning that also might be called strengths in a different sen- setting, but there's this eternal trade-off between complexity and um, sort of model variance, let us say. So in other words... Imagine that I went to, I, I gave a, a student or a young colleague a project and said, go and find a model to trade the S&P 500 that um, where if I pick different testing and training sets, different training and testing sets to build a model, the model won't vary too much in the way it makes decisions um, over the various training and testing sets. That student might come back after months and say, Oh, I have a model, and all it is is long the S and P five hundred all the time. And the goal there was to minimize the variability of the decision making from one training and testing period to another. Now, that's an example of machine learning overkill to the nth degree. You're you're managing the uh, model variance problem, the degree to which the model is sensitive to the data, but you're coming up with a very trivial answer using a, a huge amount of machinery. The other side is what, what I mentioned previously, which is that if the model is so complex that it's finding the finest structures you could possibly imagine in the data, it may be that it's just latched on, it's overfitted dramatically to whatever happened in the past in such a way that the models did, ha- did turn out to work on the testing set. 
but it has no real validity for the future. So one point I do want to make is that machine learning, if someone, if someone goes out and uses TensorFlow or some off-the-shelf application and then says, oh, I'm doing machine learning, I'm going to make money in finance, I would caution anyone who would consider investing in this to um, maybe walk the other direction because this requires a lot of experience. You can't just go in and try and apply a brute force technique in a, in a system, namely the financial system, where the signal is very low relative to the noise. So you can get all sorts of bad results lack, if you lack experience and or you're over, overly reliant on modern machine learning technology. Yeah, so I'm, th- I'm sitting here thinking on my feet because this is an area that I'm not that well versed in and I'm trying to come up with um, thoughts about why machine learning, why I'm, I guess I'm a little bit skeptical about machine learning when it, when it comes to a trend following context. Uh, and I'd love to hear you, your thoughts about this. And maybe there's more we need to go into advantages, disadvantages on, t- on machine learning. But one thing that comes to, to mind is if we can agree that the strength of trend following is that it hunts for these outliers, things that happen very rarely in a sense, but when they do, they have truly meaningful impact of returns if we can capture a, a, a massive move like UK net gas this year or Tesla or Moderna or something that really happens very rarely, it may not have happened before in a particular market, right? So my, 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 I guess what I'm trying to, to reconcile here is that if, if, if we really want, if ideally trend following works when we have enough of these outliers every year to pay for all the small losses. So if they are rare, which they are, how can machine learning learn, have enough data to learn from to pick up, oh, now you need to be really long and stay really long, Moderna or Pfizer or whatever it might be, Bitcoin or whatever you trade that has have had big big moves, um, because my 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 I'm I'm tr- I'm I'm thinking that machine learning will pick up patterns that happens more frequently. So they, you know, but maybe I, I'm completely wrong here. So I'd love to learn from you on this point. Yes, you're completely right, actually. Oh, okay. Machine learning is designed to deal with huge quantities of data. You're not going to find structure if you have rare events. And so you're really dealing, I guess, Nassim Taleb would call it mediocristan. All the stuff in the middle of the distribution is highly amenable to machine learning techniques. The long volatility stuff, and the trend following stuff, is very powerful as an adjunct to strategies that do well in normal market conditions. I'm not suggesting that machine learning will uncover the next black swan. Almost by definition, it cannot, because that would be something unprecedented or that had occurred so far below the surface that a standard technique couldn't uncover it, some structural problem. Um, but what machine learning can do is it can help you deal, at least in this restricted context that we're discussing, it can help you identify certain things that people might know on an ad hoc basis, but don't have a complete catalog of. So for example, maybe it's true that equity indices have higher mean reversion in during sell-offs 
or maybe they have higher mean reversion when volatility is high. Some of these things are known, and you can try and patiently look through the research and find a bunch of them and write them down or maybe implement them. But machine learning can do it in a far more systematic way. So it can tell you what the characteristics of markets might be under different conditions far more easily than a kind of an ad hoc cataloging can do. Now, that does not mean that when you build a system, it's going to be easy to interpret because there's so much dimensionality in, the, in most machine learning systems and the interactions can be so complex that it isn't as easy as just doing a bunch of, or building an algo that hopefully works and then uncovering all the structures um, and, and being able to write them down in your book or on, in your, on your laptop or something. It's more complex than that, but you do get more completeness in the way that you're characterizing behavior under different uh, regimes. Now, I do know that um, some of the guests we've had on the podcast over the years, their firms definitely do use some machine learning techniques. So, so there must be, as you say, there must be ways of using it constructively, even within our world of trend following um, certain parts of the process or whatever it might be. Um, there's a couple of there's a couple of other thoughts, and I'd, I'd love to afterwards hear your maybe your thoughts of whether you found particular specific areas within trend following where actually you think it might work and where it could add some some real benefits. But in the meantime, while you think on that. Um, I wanted to say that there's another challenge I would think of um, in, well, there's two things. So, so very briefly, I would say, okay, maybe this works better for shorter term models because there are more trades, there are more frequencies, there are more sample size, bigger sample size. So there's more things that it can pick up. Uh, if we only get little, you know, leave the, the issue about outliers as being very rare, but even signals for a long-term trend follow, there are very few new signals even in a calendar year. Uh, if you're long enough uh, in your uh, time horizon, so that's one thing. But, but, but on top of that, so one of the things, and we've just been through a crisis a uh, year and a half ago, um, where things really got um, dicey in the markets and messy in the markets, and uncertainty was at the highest level we've seen uh, for decades, and. One of the one of the strengths that I really truly believe that trend following gives uh, investors, it certainly gives the managers, I think that level of comfort is that we always know why we are in a certain position. We know exact. We can calculate on the back of a napkin why we're long or why we're short, and even how many contract size uh, contracts we should have, et cetera, et cetera. So there is just complete transparency, and we can. We can go back and 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 make sure that we're doing exactly what we are meant to do. I can imagine that if you're in a real crisis like that and you're relying on a complete black box that does not tell you why it's choosing to be long or short any market or et cetera, et cetera, I can imagine that 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 will be incredibly hard, might even say incredibly risky to just blindly follow in a situation like that. So it goes to this other risk that you have sometimes, and that is the risk if you lose confidence in your model and you stop following it at the wrong time. How does that sound in your... Great uh, question. Okay. Those, are, those are good too. Um, first thing is you're right. I'm, uh, I'll first start with a preamble though, which is that I'm 
really restricting myself here. Machine learning can sure. be used in a variety of ways for single stocks and other securities. I'm just focused on futures for now. Sure. So maybe I'm canceling out 95% applications. But I would argue that machine learning is useful in the area where I think trend followers struggle the most, which is short-term systems. I think we discussed yeah. this very briefly before, where short-term momentum doesn't tend to work that well cross-sectionally over time. It may have some good risk mitigation characteristics, but it, it, on a standalone basis, it's not a high sharp strategy. Uh, there, I think machine learning does help, and it's for a bunch of reasons. You have already listed a few. One of them is there are a lot more trades. Mm. There's a lot more access to shorter horizon data that can be interpreted over long periods using machine learning techniques. And I think regime specificity is very important for shorter term systems. Um, you know, uh, I mentioned this previously, but low volatility breakouts with three-day look-back windows might have very different performance characteristics from high-vol ones or low-range breakouts from high-range ones. So these sorts of things can be done very coherently in a machine learning framework. If the right features are selected, again, design is important. You can't get around that. You can't just throw data into a machine and then go away. Uh, but yes, I, I think the short-term stuff is very important. Now, in terms of risk mitigation, I agree with you. It can be very worrisome if you don't know why your machine is doing what it's doing. But you still have risk controls the same way a trend follower would. You still scale according to one over volatility or variance. So you are downsizing positions as the market becomes more volatile. And you have a leverage knob, like any trend follower does, even the most systematic one, that allows you to dial down risk if the system isn't doing what you expect it to do. Now, in machine learning, you can still set expectations for the distribution of outcomes that any model would generate. And there are good techniques for doing that. Now, it may be that you're in the negative side of that distribution at some point in time, and it's you're tearing your hair out because you don't know why the system is long or short. Um, and you don't know whether it's picked up on something that may be anomalous or may not be persistent in the future. Um, um, but you still have the risk overlay that you can apply. So I, I agree with you partially on that point, but not fully. It's not that worrisome if you can dial down your exposure. No, fair point. Just my final thoughts, questions uh, to you before we move on to another machine learning topic, which I think will surprise people. Um, not not one of our original ideas. We we kind of uh, going to talk about an, an article that we uh, both picked up on. Um, but in terms of pure AI, oh, by the way, do you uh, do you equate AI to machine learning? Is that for you exactly the same? Uh, I'm not really. I I can't put, classify myself as an expert, but my interpretation is that AI is a far more ambitious concept than machine learning. Machine learning, as I mentioned, could be anything from a supervised linear regression to something quite advanced, but it's still simply based on the idea that the machine will um, find out some of the structure once you specify the parameters sufficiently and and um, may not adapt, but, but will find certain complexities or non-linearities or connections between different parts of the data that you might not ordinarily be able to get to 
using uh, standard statistical techniques. Um, yeah. AI is, can we replace humans with combinations of humans and, um, or brains and machines and things like that? It sounds a lot more futuristic to me, but I'm sure that I've got, there are a lot of people I know who could explain it much more clearly than that. Fair enough. Now, final question, really. Um, have you come across pure machine learning, pure AI funds that have done well for a reasonably period of time? The reason I ask is that early in the podcast series, I came across a firm where they had uh, an impressive story in terms of the the people behind it, and so on and so forth. And they have come up with this machine learning, short-term trading uh, approach, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the, the, the back test looked amazing, of course. And the early period of the performance looked great. And, um, and it was a highly interesting conversation, for sure. But I would say my guess is that within a year, within 18 months, that firm had losses way beyond what they had seen in their back test and they closed the product, the fund. I think the firm actually completely closed. Yeah, I'm so happy that, to, to. Yeah. What, what's your experience? That. Yeah. Well, why am I on here talking about machine learning? I'm, I work for a machine learning firm. Of course I do volatility. I don't, I'm not directly involved in the implementation of the models, but I am part of the team and SCT, I, again, I don't want to market the firm too strongly, no but um, they have been running machine learning models since 2004, mm. and they have not meddled with the models. The models have generated all the signals and done all the trading since then. The performance has been strong, um, and it's been consistently strong, uh, somewhat similar to trend following, um, but it is a, it's a system that runs itself with research modifications every time mm -hmm. and has done well. Uh, again, I don't want to mention performance, but uh, the reason I can come on here and talk about this stuff is because I see that it does work reasonably well in practice. Now, the reason it works reasonably well is the vast experience of the people who do it, mm. who have made some mistakes. So one of the co-founders, he runs the data science program the PhD program in data science at NYU mm. business school. So he sees all the latest, greatest stuff um, and gets to absorb it over time. And there's a lot of infrastructure there as well. So um, it would be an overstatement to say that machine learning without the people, just the techniques is driving this. Of course, the people are very important and there are discretionary design decisions that need to be made, but it can be done. And I would argue that in the big hedge funds, some of the big shops, who I won't name, machine learning is being done quite effectively in certain segments of the market. It could be done in a very different way from what I've described. It probably is. It's probably used more on the equity side, where there's a lot of access to data that may not be easy to collect and tabulate numerically, but where machines can really help to look through things. It's a bit like how machines are now being increasingly used in law, in the legal profession, to go through these massive um, um, you know, law books and identify or select the right um, you know, similar cases that, mm. that may have precedent for what's going on now, or to actually go through the code 
uh, or the legal code in a systematic way. So there are a lot of areas where I am highly confident that machine learning is being used well, but I think it's done generally within in the context of a larger firm. So a big firm may have lots of assets uh, coming in. They need to deploy those assets. That's a very great problem to have. And so they need new strategies that are a little bit different. And I'm confident based on people I've talked to that some of these strategies at least have worked and do work because they can deal with data on a much larger scale than what humans can do. So I do think it works. I think it's generally inside bigger firms. The firm I'm affiliated with does it quite well. Um, I can say that. And they are exclusively focused on it, but there are not many others out there. So, No, that makes completely sense. Thanks for sharing that. I, I was not aware of, of, of that actually. Um, so because I guess I, when I think about your firm, I obviously mainly think about what you do. So, so I really appreciate that. Uh, and I completely agree. I think the bigger firms are using it much more maybe than what we know uh, or even believe. Uh, so, uh, so, so definitely. All right. Well, let's stay with the topic of machine learning, but in a completely different context, because, you know, why not apply machine learning to the Christmas dinner? How to pick the perfect Christmas dinner using machine learning? A very important topic at this time of the year. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is not an idea we came up with. In fact, we're just going to talk about an article we both read from our friends over at Man Group who wrote a, a nice article about this uh, topic. Um, and um, essentially, uh, the question they raise is, could the kind of machine learning and advanced analysis that we, uh, that we use to carry out the financial, uh, in the financial markets help optimize a festive menu and address the key issues of sustainability as people go about planning their Christmas dinners. Now, um, I won't steal the thunder of the uh, of 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 the kind of sort of the um, conclusion of it now, but maybe you can just talk a little bit about what kind of machine learning or however you want to describe it they 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 used for this, uh, and maybe a little bit of context as to. How, how they conducted this uh, experiment, I guess we can call it? Well, while I don't disagree with their conclusions, the one of the, the, I hate to start with a negative, one of the drawbacks is that they picked a constraint, or not a constraint, a target that they wish mm. to optimize over, namely sustainability. Okay. It's fine. And that led them to a highly specific range of outcomes of meals. But having said that, they looked at a number of things, uh, again, outside of what I do, but um, they looked at the various ingredients that go into Christmas meals. Um, how many meals require 10 ingredients? How many require more ingredients? How much overlap there is in the various ingredients that are used? And how an ingredient that has multiple purposes, perhaps, can play a larger role in the ideal Christmas dinner because you don't have to go to the store and buy quite so much stuff. So there's a lot of fun interesting stuff in there. And um, I doubt it will persuade anyone to cook what they wouldn't have cooked anyway. But uh, yeah, you can mess around with machine learning in countless ways. And uh, um, I love to see it. It's a good holiday spirit thing. Yeah, they, they 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 don't give us just one answer. By the way, to to this uh, uh, question, what what they say is uh, in general, and I quote here from the article, they say, because of the sustainability issue, it's no surprise that meat is the main thing missing from our shopping basket. The emissions generated 
and the land and water required dwarfs the need by vegetarian options. So that's, as you say, they put on this constraint and that clearly tilts the, the result uh, in, in one direction. The conclusion, um, and then you can kind of round it off if you would, the conclusion they said is just, with the help of machine learning techniques and advanced analytics, there are ways to help you ensure that your festive meal doesn't cost the earth. So that's maybe there was a little bit of a intention with their uh, with their, their little Christmas experiment. I don't know. Well, in my personal life, I'm sympathetic with that, but uh, I enjoyed it. So, enjoyed it greatly. So uh, yeah, I mean, machine learning. The takeaway for me that I'd like to give is that. Um, Machine learning is such a wide field that it's almost better to just pick one thing and work on that than to worry about all the different things that machine learning could do and not wind up doing any one of them. So uh, good to pick pick an area and the more restricted, the better, because at least you can build some skill and intuition about what to do. And that's the direction my colleagues have focused on. Well, if, if I didn't know better, Harry, I would say that you would be the perfect candidate to start a new series on Top Traders Unplugged uh, with machine learning as the focus. But in fact, I'm going to just reveal to the audience today that in fact, you will be doing a series on the Top Traders Unplugged podcast, of course, in a continuation uh, of what Jason started off in the terms of volatility, but you're going to expand that. So in the new year, um, people should expect to see some really interesting guests in conversation with you uh, on topics certainly wider than just volatility, but I would ser- what I would classify as more kind of issues around portfolio construction, portfolio protection, how to prepare, and so on and so forth. So, so I, I'm really super excited to uh, release some of these uh, episodes where you and I have already done some of them in terms of recording them. So uh, I kind of know what's coming and it's just uh, fantastic stuff. So, so that's... Um, a little piece yeah, of Yeah, I appreciate it. There, there were some really challenging interviews and I benefited <laughs> tremendously. So thank you, Niels. Yeah, yeah, no, you're welcome. Now, in terms of uh, some other good news, and that is that uh, when we look at the performance of the uh, CTA world and trend-following world, um, and this will be the last performance update I give because the next couple of weeks we're going to uh, air the uh, epic uh, group conversation that was recorded this week where... I had uh, the whole gang on. Uh, I'll, I'll probably repeat that in a second. I'm jumping the gun here. But anyways, in terms of where we stand, sort of mid-month December-ish, uh, two weeks to go. So a lot of things can still happen. But it looks like a pretty solid for the classical trend followers uh, year. Uh, the Beta 50 index uh, up 1% for December so far, up uh, a little bit more than 10% for the year. Uh, which is the best year in the last three, by the way. Uh, Sockgen CTA index um, up 71 basis points so far this month, up 6.5% uh, this year, kind of matching what we saw at the end of last year, so pretty solid in my opinion. Um, the trend index uh, is up 1% uh, so far in December, up 95 uh, so far this year. Again, matching pretty much what we saw last year in 2020. And then the short-term traders index um, down a quarter percent so far this month, up 71 basis points in 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 uh, 2021, uh, which is somewhat lower than what we've seen both in 2019 and 2020. As I mentioned before, my trend barometer is finishing the year, at least at this stage, on a kind of a weaker note, 
but that can all change before the year is actually over. MSCI World Index up one and a quarter for the month, having a good year, uh, surpassing last year at the moment, up 16.7% for the year. And the World Government Bond Index is uh, actually having a good month, um, but I don't track it uh, on a yearly basis uh, every week. Now, as I mentioned, um, we will be publishing part one uh, of the epic conversation, year-end conversation with Jerry, Rob Moritz, Mark and Rich, which is the first time, by the way, we got together uh, on a recording. And that's going to come out next week. And then the following week, we're going to publish part two. But we will, in preparation for next year, of course, uh, ask you to send in your questions for upcoming episodes in 2022. And you can email them, as usual, to info at toptradersonplugged.com. I want to also give a massive thanks to the people behind the scenes, the people you never see or never hear about, um, but Shane and Dimitri, who's my small but very powerful team, they make us all sound great every week. They make us look good on the website and other technical features. So uh, a big thanks to you guys. Also, of course, a massive thank you to all of you who tune in every week. We are really humbled by your support. And all of us at Top Traders Unplugged, we wish you the very best for the upcoming holiday season. From Harry and me, Thanks ever so much for tuning in this week. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor. 